0: Well, thank you, Yael, for leading us in service, and thank you, Ying and the music team, for leading us in a time of singing. It's really wonderful to hear God's people gathered together uh, to sing praises to Him, and we can do that. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah? Amen? Thank you. Yeah. Now, the best way to really follow this uh, sermon is to have your Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. And if you like, there's an e-bulletin that you can download from our website, you will give a, a, there's an outline there if it helps you in following the sermon. Now, every now and then, I would watch behind the scenes of movies, of events, and day-to-day operations. Because i like to know how things come together, what the processes are, and what challenges people face, and what ups and downs they experience. Now I was particularly interested in some behind-the-scene videos of the after-hours maintenance of SMRT. Now I must declare that my interest in those videos was sparked by the fact that I am an ex-employee. Not an engineer though. But anyway, those videos showed that what work was needed in order for the trains to run smoothly. Of course, we can easily see the work of you know train operators and 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 the station staff, right? However, we often do not see the work of the maintenance staff after train operating hours. See, when the trains come into the depot at night, as late as past midnight, technicians will have to inspect different parts of the train. For example, they have to make sure that all the wheels have no defects. And they check the brakes and they check the aircon. And then there's a team out there to make sure that the train tracks are okay. See, there will be people physically walking down the tracks to inspect. There will also be technicians and engineers replacing and grinding the tracks. And they only have a few hours to do that before the trains roll out at 4 plus AM. It is a real hot and dirty job. No pun intended. Now, throughout these unearthly hours, there is another team in the operations control center monitoring, cutting off power, turning on power. And many people are deployed and doing their jobs in order and to ensure that you have a good and safe ride the next morning. Now, I'm saying all this so that I'll be employed again if I lose my job here. But more seriously, it shows that it takes a lot of people, a lot of effort and sweat to make sure things are in place. And what about the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem? See, Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4 gives us a behind the scenes account of how the wall is rebuilt, what is needed, what challenges they face, and how they overcome. All these challenges. In other words, the big question for us is how will God's work be done? How will God's work be done? See, in these early chapters of the book of Nehemiah, the work God has set out for the Israelites to do is to rebuild the wall. And how this rebuilding is done will give us insights and lessons how God's work is to be done in general. Now, let me quickly give you a recap of what happened in chapters 1 and 2. See, after Nehemiah, he was uh, a suicide at Suicide point, he received news of the trouble and shame in Jerusalem. Nehemiah prayed for months before making his move. At the risk of his life, Nehemiah requested permission from the Persian king, King Artaxerxes, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He even requested for timber that is required to rebuild. And by the providence of God, all these were granted to him. And furthermore, he had formal letters from the king for the nearby governors to prove that this rebuilding of the wall is sanctioned by the king. And so the rebuilding of the wall begins. How will God's work be done? Well, firstly, God's work... Is done by the participation of God's people. Now, when you read through Nehemiah chapter 3, it may not sound too interesting and not very exciting. Right? This gate was repaired by who? Who put in the boats? Who put in the bars? And, and next to it was repaired by who? And the list goes on. Pretty boring, right? See, repairs in over 40 sections of the wall were reported in chapter 3 the count of the rebuilding started and ended at the ship gate near the temple from the top in an anti-clockwise direction. Now on the surface, this can be as boring as a graduation ceremony, right, where name after name were read out. You know, apart from yours, yours is the most exciting, right? But the other names are all just boring. Ah, oh, who graduated from what cause? Oh. And, the, and the loudest cheer goes to the the last one, right? Because after that, That's the end of the ceremony. So we ask ourselves, what was the purpose of recording these details on the rebuilding? Now, if you look carefully at the people who worked on the wall, you will notice a great diversity. Firstly, there was a diversity of people from different vocations. Different vocations. See, the... The account started off with Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests. Related to them are the Levites and the temple servants. They were the people involved in the religious side of things, you could say. Now, they may have greater involvement and perhaps vested interest in the city because that's where the temple was, Right? But at the same time, they could easily say, you know, no, "Such manual work of building the wall is not their business. It's not their expertise. I'm not trained for this." But they didn't, and they got their hands dirty in the rebuilding. And then there were the goldsmiths, who presumably were deployed rightly to rebuild the wall near the temple. And what I found really interesting were the merchants in verse 32 and the perfumers in verse 8. Surely they were not provisioned in construction, right? Because what does Christian Dior and Hugo Boss got to do with War and Lam Chang? (laughs) Nothing! However, they were listed here in the rebuilding. Regardless of their lack of skill, you may say, they still chipped in. Secondly, there was a diversity of social status. In the least, there were many rulers of different districts who contributed to the rebuilding. Again, we expect the common folk to do this, right? This kind of physically difficult job, is only the common folk will do that. But the higher social class rulers put in their fair share of work. However, we have this little detail in verse 5, which tells us that the nobles of Tekoa were not willing to work under their new lords or supervisors. Now, presumably, the people of Tekoa, they did not go to exile. They were not from Jerusalem, just off Jerusalem. And then now they found themselves under the leadership of this returned exile. So they could not swallow their pride, perhaps, and refuse to submit to the new leaders. But by and large, most of them were willing to do the work. And thirdly, there was a diversity in the builder's place of origin. There were people from Jerusalem itself and they literally worked from home as they rebuilt the section where their home was. Right, Their home there and they built the wall in front of them. And then there were people from nearer towns such as Gibeon and Mizpah and also people from really further places such as Jericho and and, and Kela. These places can be as far as 20 km away from Jerusalem. And it is likely that many of them travel to and fro daily from their homes because Nehemiah asked the people to stay in Jerusalem for the night in chapter 4. And please remember, they do not have the MRT, They do not have buses. They do not have grab during that time. At best, they have donkey ride. So they probably travelled on foot in and out of Jerusalem every day. And fourthly, there was diversity of gender of the builders. While most of the builders, they were men, verse 12 records for us that Shalom, the son of Helohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired his section of the wall with the help of his daughters. So my friends, what was the purpose of recording all these details on the rebuilding? I guess it was probably to commend all these people for the rebuilding, apart from the nobles of Tekoa. Their names and their family names will go down in history, in glory, and there we have it in the Bible. However, the record also showed that the rebuilding of the wall was done by all sorts of people. The higher class, the lower class, the skilled and unskilled, those who stay near, those who stay far, men and women, they all chipped in. God's people all contributed and put in their share of work. Now, the amount and effort they put in may not be equal, But everyone did what they can. They showed a commitment and unity to God's purposes. There was unselfish willingness to do what glorifies God. And there was determination to humble oneself for the greater cause. But interestingly, in the whole of Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah did not record his own contribution in this building effort. See, this rebuilding effort would not have happened without his great leadership, his planning, and his delegation. Yet he was not going to draw attention to himself, even though he was the leader. Now, it may be Nehemiah's way to show that this rebuilding job cannot be completed without the participation of the people and they did that in 52 days according to Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 it is not a perfect war but it is no mean feat either so my friends what does that mean for us as God's church today see the principle of all God's people contributing and doing God's work still applies And perhaps even more so because every Christian is enabled by the Holy Spirit to do so with spiritual gifts and a transformed heart. There was no lack in Paul's writings about Christians serving and building up the body of Christ. Just look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. These passages all speak of God's people using their gifts to serve and to build up one another. So what does that mean? Now that means that we cannot be too busy to serve. Now I do not necessarily mean a formal ministry. See, we can serve in many different ways. It can be as simple as meeting another brother or sister in Christ for coffee, to share and to pray for one another. It can be to text and ask some someone how he or she is doing i haven't seen you for a while how are you doing now you need not be always the dg leader or or the youth leader or the pastors to do that if anything that you learn from nehemiah 3 is that god's work is everyone's ministry we just need to plan and be intentional to use our time and our energy to serve others. But secondly, Nehemiah 3 also tells us that there is nothing too lowly for us to serve in. See, regardless of your social status, abilities and skills, you can serve. You know, last week I was uh, at Bishan uh, when we reopened Children's Church and when we reopened 1130 service. But for the first time in two years, See, unlike Adam, Bisha has many, many entry points. And furthermore, the, the church, church classes and the Mandarin service is spread all over the school. Many of our church attendees have forgotten where to go, right? Especially when their children have, you know, they, they, two years ago they were in preschool and now they're in primary school, that kind of thing. Yeah, so our DG Somers, they had to run everywhere, put up signages, help with chase together, check in, guiding the people where they're supposed to go. Now, it can be a bit chaotic and, and, uh, and stressful, right? especially when usually all the crowds come in at the same time, right? But they just serve dutifully and they serve patiently, you know, regardless of what they do for work outside you know, and, and what social status they, or where they stand in society. They just went out and sweared and served. And then when we ran out of manpower, all I had to do was to go up to one of my deacons, Brian, can you help? And his reply was music to my ears. Just one word, anything. Now I've yet to talk about other people, right? The tech crew, the church leaders, they were all out there to serve and nothing is too lowly for them to do. But lastly, we cannot be too choosy with where and how we serve. Of course, there is wisdom in putting the right people with the right gifts in the right places, just like how the priests and the goldsmiths were rebuilding near the temple. But everyone else was just assigned a section of the wall. See, some of us may want to serve Only as a DG leader, others may only want to serve in the music team, but it may not be the right time. It may not be the right ministry for you. However, there are many other ways to serve. Sometimes it just takes a humble and a willing heart to learn and to serve. So we come back to our big question today, right? How can God's work be done? Well, firstly, God's work is done with the participation of God's people. It is everyone's ministry. But secondly, God's work is done with problems surrounding God's people. See, when Sambalat, the governor of Samaria, heard that the Israelites were rebuilding the war, they, they, he became angry right, and was greatly incensed. See, nobody likes a rising force in your backyard, right? Especially when they are your enemies of old. And what did Sambalat do in response? He employed psychological or propaganda warfare. Perhaps he knew he would have problems launching an outright war because the king actually sanctioned this rebuilding. So he ridiculed, ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates and his army. Why did he do that? Now, that is like a show of might to strike fear in your enemies. Not very different from our modern day, you know, big-time war games, you know, display of powerful weapons in parades, you know, and, and broadcasting offensive statements in the public media. And then Sambalab, what did he do? He belittled the efforts and the abilities of the Jews. Ah, what are these feeble Israelites doing? Can they really rebuild their war? Will they be able to complete it and offer a thanksgiving offering? Can they really achieve it in such a short time before the enemies come down on them? And look at what materials they have. The stones that they have are only the burnt and broken ones. It's like taking broken towels, thrown away wood, scrap metal to renovate your house. What good can come out of them? Now, if one distractor is not good enough, here comes another. Tobiah the Ammonite ridiculed them as well. He said that a fox would crumble the wall if he climbed on it. See, the whole purpose of their jeering, their taunting, is to destabilise, to discourage, and to question their resolve. But it really made me wonder, Why were they so concerned if the Jews were really that good for nothing? See, if they were really that useless and feeble, why bother going through all these efforts to derail them from rebuilding? See, the attention the Jews received showed that they were really a threat. And they proved themselves. See, archaeology shows that the wall that they built, they're they're not pretty nor perfect, but it's at least nine feet thick. And I think it will hold up even if a thousand foxes were on it. However, these radicules and Jews were only round one of their attacks. After the Jews managed to rebuild the wall to half the height, the enemy sent in round two of attack. At this time, there were more enemies according to verse 7. As you can see from the map, Sambala and Tobiah, they were in the north in Samaria. The Arabs were in the south in the Negev. And the Ammonites were in the east across the Jordan. And we have the Astrodites who were in the west where the ancient Philistines were. In other words, the Israelites found themselves fully surrounded by enemies. Now, these groups of people probably fought against each other, but now they are banded together against Israel. As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And what did they do against Israel? Well, verse 8 tells us that they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir trouble for them. See, they, may, they might not have you know, a, a direct war against the city, but they may be skirmishes here and there, but they likely would have spread rumours, taunted and threatened the Israelites. And we see the effects of that in verses 10 to 12. See, according to verse 10, the Israelites began to doubt and believe that their their strengths were were failing. Furthermore, they began to believe that, you know, this project was just too big, too difficult. There was too much rubble for them to deal with. And that's the power of rumours, right? Now, just think back to the early days of COVID-19. All you need is a message forwarded by one to the other to the other and a few pictures of empty shelves. Right? And you see people rushing to the supermarkets to, for toilet paper, for instant noodles, for canned food and frozen food. That's the power of rumors. And then in verse, verse 11 to 12, the enemies were also spreading fear that they will come and kill them in secret, anytime and anywhere. Now imagine the constant fear of having someone come up to you in the night, or behind you to kill you. That sounds like Ukraine, isn't it? If you are living in Ukraine today, you never know whether the next bomb or the next bullet will hit you. And you can see that the Israelites were really affected in verse 12. Those who were travelling in and out of of Jerusalem felt so traumatised and so scared that they had to tell the leaders ten times over that they will be attacked from every side. Ten times over. So there is genuine fear for they are un- unprotected while on the road. And their families, you know, if they stay outside of Jerusalem, they were really out there in the open fields without protection. So what do all these things tell us? Well, it tells us that God's work will not be done without problems. There will be opposition externally. See, we are not to be surprised that opposition will come when we do God's work. And why so? For we are at enmity with the world and its values. Now, that's not to say that everyone in the world is against God's church, or the Christians, but there will be a significant force against the church of God and its values. See, in some countries, it is open opposition. Christians are literally killed, kidnapped, raped, put into prison, and have their properties confiscated. But perhaps it is more subtle in our developed countries. So just the other day, I, I, I read about a, a Christian football coach. And he was coaching in a public school. And he was fired for praying silently on the football field when his team was playing. Well, the school said that he, he made a public statement by praying. And he pressured the non-Christian players on his team. Can you believe that? Now, I imagine you can argue the other way too, right? The Christians are, are pressured to renounce their faith if they have a non-Christian coach. So as, as you can see, there will be problems of opposition when doing God's work and simply living a Christian life. And not to mention Satan. See, Satan is not overtly mentioned in this, in this chapter. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 tells us clearly that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, Satan and his cronies will not be happy in letting Christians do God's work easily. They will seek to disrupt, they will seek to distract and discourage God's people in doing God's work. And the effects can be felt internally, just as we saw in the people of Israel. See, how many times have we heard of grumbling and disunity in the Church of God? Of course, that is not to say that there cannot be healthy discussions and suggestions. They are needed for accountability and for improvements. However, it can so easily deteriorate to arguments and fights because opinions differ. And they are often not on morality issues, but preferences filled by pride fear and distrust and how many times are god's servants discouraged by the constant failure and indifference of those they shepherd just ask the dg leaders the brother and sister keepers leaders the bus leaders the basic leaders the children church leaders the leaders of the Bida Fellowship, Rhoda Fellowship, and in fact, any ministry leaders. Now, not that there isn't any joy in service, but there will be no lack of problems, no lack of discouragement as Satan and the world tempt and draw people away from Christ. So how should God's people respond to such problems? And so we come to the third point. How can God's work be done? Well, firstly, God's work is done with the participation of God's people. It is everyone's ministry. But secondly, God's work is done with problems surrounding God's people. And lastly, God's work is done with prayer and practical actions. See, in round one of the enemy's attack, how did Nehemiah and the Israelites respond? Well, verses 4 to 5 tells us that they firstly prayed to God. Just as how Nehemiah prayed from the start of the book, he continued and rallied the Israelites to pray when problems surround them. They prayed that God would turn the enemy's insults back onto them and give them up to the be plundered and perhaps be in captivity. They also pray for God's, God to not to cover their guilt, and not to blot out their sin. Now that sound that sound harsh, doesn't it? Shouldn't that be shouldn't that be shouldn't you know, should that be how God's people should act? Is that how they should pray? Shouldn't God's people be more, more gracious, more loving, more forgiving? Now, we must first understand that what the enemies were doing were directly against God, His purposes, and His glory. The attacks were not merely against the Israelites. The attacks were against God Himself. They were insulting and provoking God to anger by insulting and provoking His people. And secondly, being loving and gracious does not mean that justice is thrown out. See, the Bible speaks of God as holy and just. He will not condone sin. In his time, he will judge all those who sin, and that is why the Lord Jesus had to die on the cross. For in Jesus' death, the love and justice of God is satisfied at the same time. God, in his love, sent Jesus to pay for our sins. Yet Christians were told, for example, in Romans 12, to leave vengeance to God. God himself will repay the wrongs. And on the last day, all of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And thirdly, that prayer is an urgent one to stop whatever the enemies were doing. See, the enemies were threatening to harm God's people and derail God's plans. So the Israelites' prayer was for God to do something about it. They were helpless in the face of these enemies. If they really started a direct attack on Jerusalem, all around them, north, south, east, west, it was going to be unlikely that they would survive. So it was a prayer for God's help and intervention. They prayed in the first round of attack, and then they prayed again in the second round of attack, according to verse 9. However, praying was not the only thing they did. Yes, it was their first response to their problems, and rightly so. But they took practical actions as well. And at the height of the tensions and, and problems, Nehemiah probably halted the work in verse 13, and then he stationed people at the lowest point and the most vulnerable parts of the war. And the men were armed with weapons to defend against an impending attack. And it worked. God answered their prayers. News of the Israelites being ready and prepared to defend their city, traveled to the ears of the enemies. Whatever the enemies were, had plotted to do had been frustrated by the Lord. The Israelites would stand firm and not cave in. If the enemies were to attack, they know that the element of surprise was gone, and any victory would come at a huge cost. Huge cost to them, and it seemed that that was enough. To put off the attacks. Now, with the immediate attacks removed, the Israelites returned to the work of rebuilding the wall. But Nehemiah wasn't complacent. He continued to strategize and to, de- to devise a good defense plan. In verses 16 to 18, he divided his, his servants into two halves one half to construct the wall, the other half equipped with weapons to fight any time. And every one of the carriers and the builders have their weapons with them as they worked. Now, if you have been following the news, or or we all just now, you will know that Beijing is facing a serious surge in COVID-19 cases, right? See, unlike Singapore, where the government gave us a few days to respond to lockdowns, right, circuit breaker, the lockdown in China can be instantaneous without prior warning. So the people in Beijing will tell each other, before you leave your home to go to work, bring your pyjamas, bring your dollar trees. And when they're coming back from work, they'll be told to bring your computers, bring your documents. Why? Because they never know when they will be locked down. They'll be locked down when they are in the building, they'll be locked down at home, anytime. They are to be ready for any scenario. So likewise, The Israelites are to be armed with their swords and their tools so that they will be able to drop their tools anytime and put out their swords to fight their enemies. And that was not all. Nehemiah implemented a warning and rallying system. Now, if you look at the map of the city then, it's actually not small. Now, I went there myself. It's quite a walk, actually. And their numbers are really small, comparatively. And that's why he told all the traveling builders to just stay in the city, beef up the numbers, right? Instead of going to and fro from their homes. And as they were rebuilding 40 over sections of the wall, the people are spread out at different parts. So in order to unite their strength in fending off the enemies, the people of Israel were to rush to where the trumpet is sounded. And lastly, Nehemiah himself, together with his brothers and his men, they led by example by always, being always ready to fight. They did not take off their clothes and always had their weapons with them. Now that sounded like my outfield exercise in my NS days. Always smelly. Always having my rifle with me. Even when I sleep, I will, we will post guard and we will cuddle our rifle to sleep. Right? No wonder our rifle is, is called our wife. Right. But ultimately, Nehemiah knew that the only one who can protect them and give them success is the Lord himself. No matter how much he prays and, who, and no matter how much he strategizes or he plans and executes, it is the Lord who will save them. That is why when he rallied the Israelites, in verse 14, he told them to remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, for he will fight for them and their families. He didn't just tell them to trust in his strategies, to trust in his abilities, but to trust in the Lord. They were fully dependent on the sovereign Lord to make their plans and efforts. It was the Lord himself that frustrated the enemy's plans. Indeed, as Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labour in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. So my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, what lesson must we learn from this? Well, the first lesson is that we must be people of prayer. See, if we recognise that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but Satan and the spiritual forces of evil, we must commit everything to the Lord to fight for us. See, Ephesians 6 tells us that apart from putting on the armor of God and being rooted in the gospel, we must pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. For the best defense we have is God Himself. Now, it does not mean that God will definitely protect us from all harm like the Israelites then. However, it is to pray that God's purposes will be fulfilled and we will persevere in being instruments for that. For the Israelites, then, it is to rebuild the walls, and for us today, it is to live for God's glory and to build up His church. But secondly, we are not to be passive. See, God's sovereignty does not negate the need for human responsibility. So we must be intentional and active in our actions. See, very often, God works through the works of his people. God works through the works of his people. A church service like this, it would not have happened without the tech team behind You watching at home would not receive this if they didn't work hard. The music team would prepare and practice hours before this service. The children and the youth do not grow up or mature without the leaders faithfully preparing and teaching them. And do you know that there are a group of ladies who come to church weekly to prepare crafts just for the children's church? And you know that there's a team of people who will visit the sick and visit the homebound regularly? So as God's people, we must act. Do not let fear, do not let distance, do not let discouragement stop you from stepping out to serve one another. See, every ministry is desperate for people to serve. See, just last week in Bishan, we have two teachers to 20 over preschool kids, toddlers, I think. See, no wonder when they come for 11.30 service, right? They just knock out on the seats. Pink sun ready, everyone. Of course, everyone has their own limitations and circumstances. If you cannot commit to such a regular ministry then pray and ask god to help you be intentional to meet someone to build friendships to share christ and to pray for someone see when we do that god will honor our hearts honor our intentions honor our efforts and he will use our works to do his work he will use our works to do his work So may the church arise and serve him and to serve his people. Let us rise and pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word to us today. Indeed, you are the sovereign Lord who works out your purposes Despite the opposition of your enemies and the weaknesses of your people, may your will be done. But grant us the grace to be able to participate in your purposes and see you work through us for your glory and for the building up of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.